So as Ben said, we'll be reading Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the very word of God. We concluded our study last week at the end of chapter 5, and its assertion that the power of grace and the life that it brings is infinitely stronger than the power of sin and the death that it brings. So Romans 5.20, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So that, verse 21, Romans 5.21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) The promise of the gospel is astounding. The power of grace simply amazing. I dare you to hope or dream in what the love of God has done for us. This is what we believe. You get this, right? The claim is that in the person and work of Jesus, this is what Christians believe. I hope this is what you believe. In the person and work of Jesus, the grip that sin and death holds on life as we know it has been broken. I'm going to say that again because you didn't hear it. (laughs) What we believe as Christians is that in the person and work of Jesus, the grip that sin and death holds on life as we know it, has been broken. There is a new world. I mean, can you imagine what kind of world it must be where sin and death no longer reigns? It's a new world. There's no other way to call it than that, right? Okay, maybe this one. A new creation. 
I mean, you can't even imagine a world in which sin and death no longer reigns. What kind of a world is that? It's a, it's a new creation. And we believe as Christians, this is not something that awaits us purely in the future. It is something that has come now. Right now. Where you sit. In this day in which you live. So now here in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul deals with a question that is frequently raised, both in his day as well as ours, when the gospel of grace, that gospel of grace that I just summarized at the end of Romans 5, is rightly proclaimed. You start to believe that. You walk around telling people that. You delight in that good news. A question like the one in verse 1 of chapter 6 is sure to come. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer comes emphatically, immediately, in the very next verse, by no means. It's followed then by an explanation that is kind of the bulk of this passage, verses 3 through 10, and then verse 11 draws a conclusion. So, this morning, let's consider first the problem or our, our problem with sin. Our problem with sin. Second, our victory over sin. And then finally, the relationship that we have now with sin. Our problem with sin, our victory over sin, and our relationship with sin. A relationship to sin. So, so first, our problem with sin. You see, far from allowing this amazing grace to remain in the abstract, that's what doctrines can sometimes do. They just become bullet points in our head, and they lose their, their feet, their practicality into life. Far from allowing the amazing grace of the gospel to be a, a bullet point, that you affirm, Paul continues here in chapter 6 to push this issue into the real day-to-day reality for the one who trusts in Jesus. What then? What about this gospel of grace? What shall we say about it? These words that he introduces in chapter 6 to us is a way of recognizing that what has just been said can be misunderstood or certainly misapplied. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We've already seen a form of this question arise back in Romans chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It actually comes up twice in Romans 6. We're going to see it again next week in verse 15. But at issue here is the practical reality of what it would mean if, in fact, the great promise of God, what, what I just said we're supposed to believe as Christians, if the great promise of God, the, the promise to redeem and restore his creation, has arrived with the person and work of Jesus as the promised Messiah, what then? What about sin? What about this world that we live in full of sorrow and difficulty and, yes, Death. Why is it still an issue if, in fact, the kingdom of God has come? That's the question. 
So before we jump into the heart of our passage this morning, I, I want us to just park here for a moment and consider why it is that a question like this is being asked. What are, the, what are the kind of things that surround a question like the one we find in verse 1 of chapter 6? And the first answer that we can give is that the question of our relationship to sin remains because of the emphasis on grace, a clear, strong emphasis on grace, not works, as the basis or grounds for our justification. This is the counterintuitive truth of the gospel. God does not consider any good deed or moral effort on our part, either past, present, or future, as a prerequisite for justifying us. He gives grace to sinners as a gift. And the only way to be justified is to receive this grace to come to Christ with empty hands. We just sang these words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Uh, Caleb actually said this is a counterintuitive truth, and it is. Because ingrained in the sin-sick heart is the desire to relate to God contractually rather than by grace. It's the dreaded disease that we often in our day called legalism, and it troubles every single one of us. I'm looking at legalists today, and you're looking at one here. Every single one of us is a legalist at heart. All of us. Every person you ever come across is a legalist at heart. And until we have preached the gospel of grace so loudly, so repeatedly, that we begin to wonder if perhaps we could just remain in sin, because grace would then abound all the more, if we don't preach the gospel that long until a question like Romans 6.1 comes up, we haven't preached the gospel clearly, and we're going to remain stuck in our legalistic relationship to God. You see, God's grace is seen most clearly in those who have sinned most badly. God's grace is seen most clearly in those who are the greatest of sinners. You want to see the grace of God? Show me a great sinner. You want to not see the grace of God? Try to cover your sin. Try to hide it. Don't confess it. Keep it to yourself, and God's grace will just not be that amazing. God's grace abounds, listen, not just to the greatest of sinners, but especially to the greatest of all sinners. This is the only cleansing flood that drowns the legalist's heart. And... Churches that believe this good news, this gospel of grace, should be churches full of this kind of radical grace. Our church, if we believe this gospel, I, I think about this a lot. Our church should have this kind of an atmosphere. An atmosphere that says, welcome sinners. Welcome sinners. Sinners, And you know what keeps us from having that kind of an attitude, that kind of an atmosphere? The legalistic heart that every one of us carries into this room today. 
This is a culture of grace. It's what the gospel ought to create in a community that believes the good news of Jesus. Oh, may God give us a church with an atmosphere of radical grace. But now you have to, you have to see that there is a question that's raised in verse 1. So, so can we remain in sin? Are we to remain in sin? Now, I want you to notice that this question here is dealt with just as strongly in this chapter as the emphasis on grace was in chapter 5. By no means is Paul's answer in the very next verse. Or, God forbid, perish the thought. What is the opposite of legalism? If we walk in with a heart that's legalistic, I'm saying that's what we all carry in as a fallen sinner. What would be the opposite of that? And the word that is often used for the other end of the spectrum, not one that we um, are usually as familiar with. I hear lots of people go around saying, I was raised in a church that was very legalistic. I'm like, well, yes, because you were in that church. And you're a legalist. So, of course, you were raised in a church. That, I mean, that, there's no doubt about that. So, so what's the opposite? And, and the word that is usually, uh, the word that usually kind of conveys the opposite idea is the word antinomianism. It, it just simply means against the law. So, so if legalism is seeking to, to relate to God contractually, I, I do things for God, God rewards me. If that's what legalism is, then antinomianism and an attempt to fight this deadly disease of legalism sometimes think that the remedy is, okay, well, we can't, we can't be saved by our good deeds. We can't earn the favor of God. So then let's care nothing about good deeds against the law, antinomianism. The law is an enemy, so let's just do away with it. Who cares? That will give us that atmosphere, Ben, that you're looking for. Well, the problem here is that we often think that the cure for one, for one disease is just a little dose of a different disease. You see, legalism and antinomianism may be opposites in one sense, but they are equidistant from the gospel of grace. Yes, they may be polar opposites, but when it comes to the gospel of grace, both of them are infinitely far away. So the question here, the problem here, the question that is raised is, is, what is our, how, do we, how do we relate to sin? What is, what is our problem? How do we deal with this problem? And the question of how we relate to sin or the problem of sin is important because it's connected to how we relate to God. If neither legalism nor antinomianism gives us a solution, then what does? Now, some have said that the faith that saves is necessarily transformative. So when God justifies a person who trusts in Christ, he also not only counts them as righteous, but he also infuses them with righteousness. And therefore, a person who has received grace must also truly be transformed by this grace so that they can now cooperate with God's grace and do good deeds. That is, in fact, the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. 
It is what the reformers some 500 years ago said. That is not what the Bible tells us. The reformers rightly saw, and those of us who stand within the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, understand that the plain teaching of the Scripture goes like this. You've already seen these verses. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.3, Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith. And so it will be for all of us, Romans 4.22-24, Romans 5.1. The promise of God, Romans 4.16 says, depends on faith so that it may rest on grace, not on works. So if that's so, if we, I think, rightly reject the official Roman Catholic Church's teaching on how justification and our good deeds, our sanctification, go together, we're still left with the problem of Romans 6.1. And the charge makes sense in light of the discovery of the Protestant Reformation. But what doesn't make sense, and this is the problem, what doesn't make sense, this is the problem that the Roman Catholic Church was reacting against, what the Counter-Reformation was all about, what doesn't make sense is if we've heard this good news, this gospel of grace, and then we just shrug our shoulders and say, who cares about sin? Paul doesn't do that. We cannot live with the charge of, an, of being antinomians any more than we can live with the charge of legalism. Paul doesn't do that. Neither should we. We need a solution to the problem of sin. How do we get it? Where is the victory found? This question then takes us to the heart of the verses before us this morning where we find the answer. Paul does not simply say, no, of course, we should just... Keep on sinning in view of abundant grace. He tells us why we should not. But actually, before he does that, he tells us why we cannot. Why we cannot. And and he tells us, look what he says. He tells us we have already conquered sin. The problem of sin has already been dealt with. We have already defeated sin. We already have victory over sin. That's what he means at the end of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, the question before us this morning is not primarily a question of behavior. That will come into view next week in next week's passage. The force behind the question of Romans 6.1 is not so much about whether we Christians can just go on sinning with impunity. Oh, we believe in grace. We just keep on sinning. God ignores it. That's going to come in the second part of chapter 6. Before we can address questions about how we should live, you have to see the facts about where we now live. This takes us back again to the good news that we say we believe as Christians. Don't you see? Paul says, that if you are now united to Jesus by faith, then you have died to sin? Don't you understand, Paul is saying, that when God declares a person to be righteous by grace through faith in Christ, that person dies, becomes dead to sin. Now, what does it mean to be dead to sin? It is obvious that 
Paul does not mean that a Christian becomes sinless, unable to actually sin. This is obvious not only in the text, it's obvious in normal everyday experience. You are in a room full of sinners. Welcome. We're glad you joined us. That's who we are. This is obvious that this is a problem that still is with us. It's what this chapter, Romans 6, is meant to address. Not just this chapter, by the way, but the entire next one, chapter 7. And, in fact, chapter 8 as well. So to be dead to sin. When we say, we Christians, we are dead to sin, we do not mean that we cannot sin or that we do not have sin anymore. This becomes clear in verse 6, where the Christian's death to sin means, Paul says, that the body of sin has been brought to nothing. Now, the body of sin does not mean that our physical bodies are intrinsically sinful. Again, we are believers in the gospel of Jesus. God God sent his son to redeem all of creation, including us, including our bodies. It's the reason we believe in resurrection. The body is referenced here because sin takes concrete expression in our bodies, in our bodily members, like our brains, our tongues, our eyes, our hands. So to die to sin means, in the verse that follows, that we have been set free. We've been set free from sin. So it's clear that, no, we should not choose to keep on sinning. Why? Because you don't have to. You've died to sin. Sin has lost its power over us. We don't have to sin anymore because we are dead to sin's power. That's what Paul's saying. So the question then is, well, how did that happen? When and how did you die to sin? And verse 3 tells us rather explicitly, look what it says. Our death to sin. How do you know you're dead to sin? You're in this room, you're like, how do I know that sin has no power over me? Here's what he says. Our death to sin took place when we were baptized into Christ Jesus. Because at that time, he says, we were also baptized into his death. Which was apparently a dying to sin. So again, a not dying by sin, as if sin killed Jesus but rather a dying to sin, a a death which actually is a victory, the overthrowing of sin and its power. That's what we believe Jesus achieved at the cross. He didn't die as a martyr, overcome by the power of sin. He laid down his life in victory to dethrone sin and rob it of its power. That's what he did. The cross of Christ is a triumph, not a tragedy. Christ did not die because sin gained the mastery over him because he was somehow defeated by it. Instead, Jesus' death was the defeat of sin, the breaking of sin's power. So if we ask here, in this text... And I'm just talking about this text right now. If we ask here, why did Jesus die according to Romans chapter 6, then the answer has to be he died in order to break the power of sin over all of creation, including over you and your body. 
That's why he died. Jesus, listen, Jesus did not die only. Oh, please hear me. Jesus did not die only to pay the penalty for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. He did that. Yes, amen. But he also died to bring an end to the ruthless power of sin over us. Jesus died to declare that the present evil age had come to an end, a new era had dawned, the kingdom of God had arrived. Do you get that? This is what the Bible is at pains. This is the gospel that Paul says he preached, he proclaimed that he was not ashamed of. He would tell anybody because all of us know the problem of sin. Now, this is, of course, strange and unexpected, no doubt. Plenty of people are going to roll their eyes when you start saying Jesus is the solution to this sin, this problem. Of course, you roll your eye. You don't believe it either. So we're going to keep preaching it every Sunday to ourselves because this is not the way we would have expected the kingdom to come. The kingdom of God did not dawn upon the world in a show of might. It's what first century Israel was looking for. When the kingdom of God comes, those Roman centurions standing on the street corner aren't going to be there anymore. So where's the power, right? Where's the power? But the kingdom of God came in humility. In the Messiah dying on a cross. The way to the kingdom was by the way of peace and love, the way of the cross. And this is critical. Listen, this is so critical for us to understand. Victory over sin. You want victory over sin? And maybe that's not the word you use for it. Whatever it is that just is always a defeat or a failure or a frustration, that part of you that you want to see transformed and changed you want victory over it? It does not come by fighting it with sin's own weapons. Sin does not get toppled by more sin. You get that? You don't say, well, well, there's a problem. There's a bunch of cheats, so let's cheat to beat the cheating. Oh, people try that, don't they? That's not the way sin gets toppled. Sin goes down by grace. So when your neighbor does something against you, how are you going to topple the problem of sin? With grace. Radical grace. You're on it, Clyde. You got it, bro. That's it. But, but you don't, but I don't want to get trampled on. What did Jesus do? He went to a cross. The kingdom of God does not need your carnal weapons to advance it. Doesn't need your cheating. Doesn't need your lying. God can do just fine because he sent his son and died on a cross. Sin gets toppled by grace, the grace that is in Christ. Now, here's the question. What if, just imagine, again, I dare you, I dare you to imagine, what if the death of Christ, a death which the Bible says is a victory, what if the death of Christ was your death as well? 
What if Jesus, who triumphed on the cross, what if that was your triumph as well? In fact, look what Paul says. Don't you know? Paul says, (laughs) verse three, I love it. Don't you know? It is. Don't you know that when Jesus triumphed on the cross, so did you? He says, those of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. And again, in verse five, we have been united with him in a death like his. What kind of death? A victorious death. So if you and I died like Jesus died, not a physical death on a Roman cross, of course not, but a death that is actually a victory, a death that defeats sin, then don't know what this means for you. It means that sin has lost its power over you too. It has been defeated. It's been toppled. How have we been united to Christ's death? Paul says, by being baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, this does not mean that the act of baptism, like getting in the baptistry, filling the water, going under the water, unites you to Christ magically. But baptism is mentioned here simply because it was the universal initiation rite for believers in Christ. Baptism here simply stands for all Christians. The New Testament has never heard of the idea of an unbaptized Christian. There's no such thing. So what Paul is saying is, okay, Christian, you're having a hard time taking the gospel of grace from a bullet point and applying it into your life. So what am I going to do? How am I going to make it tangible? Okay, remember the water that you got into. Remember what baptism means. To be baptized into someone means that one has given up his independence and has confessed complete allegiance. As one New Testament scholar once wrote, Baptism is an enlistment ceremony. So Paul is reminding all true Christians, if you hope in Christ, you consider yourself a Christian today, then Paul is saying, just go back to that initiation ceremony, that enlistment ceremony. Do you remember it? And and Paul is saying, remember what it is you signed up for when you trusted in Christ. Remember what it is, what it means to be enlisted into him. When you signed up to be united to Christ, you signed up to be united to his death. Now, perhaps you didn't realize that when you were baptized. I know we got a couple of veterans in here. Most of us didn't go through the military, but maybe you get like a few weeks in, you're like, oh, this is what I signed up for? You say, I didn't quite have all that in my head when I signed up. Does that matter? Oh, well, then let's take you back. You can start over again. (laughs) Okay, I thought that was probably not how it worked. So maybe that's you. Maybe when you got baptized, you did not realize what all it means to sign up to be a follower of Jesus, to be enlisted to be completely devoted to Jesus. Maybe you didn't realize that that means sin no longer has power over you. You don't fight sin with sin's power. You die with Christ. 
That is where victory is found. Maybe you didn't realize that. I'm sure most wide-eyed soldiers don't completely understand what all they're getting themselves into on the day that they enlist. But remember, Christian, baptism is not only something you did, it is something that happened to you. It's something that gave you a new status. So now you know that this is what you've signed up for. Now you understand. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I signed up to know him, but I signed up to know his power. I signed up to share in his sufferings. I signed up to be like him in his death. This is what it means to be a Christian. So death, this death anyway, has this clear purpose. Verse 4 says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see, do you see why you've died with Christ? You, you died with Christ. The whole reason to be conformed to Christ's death is to live in the thrill of his victory. This is why you enlist. This is why you sign up to be conformed to Christ and his dying is because there is so much more to see in the thrill of his victory. Because if death has been defeated, what could possibly have been in its place? If death is overcome then the only possibility that remains is life, life. We don't have to stay under the power of sin. We can live in a new world, in a new creation, in newness of life. So in theological terms, here's what we can say. Justification, some of you, you just want the theological terms. Justification, a declaration of righteousness, a verdict of not guilty, and sanctification, that is, a process by which we actually become righteous. These two things are not identical, but neither can they be separated. If in Christ you have been justified, then in Christ you also have been, will be, are being sanctified. The verb that's translated here has been set free is the same Greek word, in fact, for the word justified. Sanctification and justification actually come from a similar root. It suggests to us that undergirding the whole goal of sanctification is the same decree, not guilty, that justified. So listen, Christian, if you are not under sin's condemnation, praise God. If you know that in Christ you have hope that when you die, you will live. God will say not guilty. You get to go to heaven. It, you get all that. That's wonderful. That's great. But do you see how much more you have? Do you see how good this news is right now? Because if that's true, then it also means you've been set free from the grip of sin. You, you, you don't have to stay. Indeed, you are no longer under its reign. So what do we do now? How do we deal with the problem of sin? If, if sin continues to remain a problem, but we are, the, the conquering of sin, the victory over sin is found in union with Christ, then what is the relationship now that exists between us and sin? And the answer is found here 
as Paul brings this passage to close. Look what he says. Verse 8. The way to understand your relationship to sin is to think of your relationship to Jesus. Verse 8 says, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Since we've already died with Christ in Christian baptism, but we await a coming literal resurrection of the body, then where are we now? What's this relationship between us and sin? And, and Paul's is saying, it's basically like an intermediate state. We are dead with Christ. We await a coming literal resurrection of the body. So we're in a kind of intermediate state, the same kind of way that we might talk about the departed dead in Christ right now. <laughs> Your relationship to sin is very much the same as those who have died with Christ now. Something is already true, you're dead, but something is not yet true. You're still waiting a final resurrection. So that means there is a two-part answer to how we now relate to sin. There is something that's already true, but also something not yet realized, something we're waiting for. And this is how we should think of it. So what's already true? Verse 9 and 10 tells us. We know that Christ, look at these verses. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. That's what resurrection means. Resurrection is not a resuscitation, however amazing that might be. Resurrection is you've entered into death and you come out the other side. Life after Life after death. A body living and death no longer has dominion over it. You can't die anymore. An immortal body. We know that that's where Christ is right now. He's in a raised, immortal, resurrected body. So he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Christian, understand this. With Christ, having been united to Christ, you also have already died to sin once for all. This death that you've died is a victory, a, a triumph, not a tragedy. In other words, in relationship to sin, you are victorious. Sin no longer rules over you. Do you think that way about your sin? Paul says, you should. You should. Now, I know. I know. I'm a pastor, after all. That for many of you, it just doesn't seem true. You feel defeated by sin day after day. But the reason that sin no longer rules is because grace has come. So when you sin, when you feel defeated by sin, when sin feels like an invincible power, don't try to resolve. Don't resolve, okay, I'm going to try harder. Don't say, okay, I'm going to do better. 
There's no hope in that resolution. Instead, turn to Christ, to whom you are united by faith and find in him abundant grace. That's the counterintuitive part that Caleb was talking about. Because when you sin, you want to run, you want to run away from Christ, don't you? That's your instinct. You want, to, you want to hide. You feel the shame. You feel the guilt. You think, okay, I just got to try harder, but overcome this, and then it'll be better. That's that legalistic heart. When you sin, Christian, what do you do? You run to him. You run to Jesus because grace in Christ has come. And in him, there is no condemnation. There's only forgiveness, grace, mercy. Every time, every single time, you don't believe it. So I'm telling you again, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So run to Jesus when you sin. But what is it that's not yet realized? This is who you are. This is your relationship to sin. Sin has no power over you, has no dominion over you. It doesn't reign over you. It doesn't hold you under its condemnation of death because grace has come. But what is not yet realized? And you know this. You, you are not yet done striving against sin. You can't now just put everything in park, not care, sit right there. There's still sin to fight. There's still, still sin to kill. The antinomian gospel is not good news. It's just not good news. Some people in a sincere effort to want to highlight the grace of God communicate, I think unintentionally, but they communicate, there's no hope for you ever being changed. You're just overrun by sin, but God loves you and forgives you anyway. That's not good news. It's not good news. Some of us feel beat up, defeated. We want change. We want to be transformed. And the gospel of grace promises this to you as well. So what should you do? Verse 11 expresses the two-part summary. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What a great verse. What a great verse. It's a short verse. You could, you could probably memorize it in the next two minutes and let it be an anthem that rings over your life. You see, the verb consider does not mean pretend. <laughs> well, consider that you are... Ben, okay, I'm going to do a professional golfer. Colby, laugh. Just laugh right now. He saw me last weekend. Yeah. That's not what consider means. Consider yourself dead to sin. Well, just pretend that you've died, but you really haven't. That's not what it means. The word consider here means count it up. Calculate. Uh, do an accounting. Of all that you have in Christ, you go to your checkbook, you go to your checking account, and you start clearing the checks, balancing, making sure it all adds up. When you're done, you don't have more money than you did before you did the process. <laughs> That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? It doesn't work that way. You just now know what you actually have or don't have. <laughs> well, Paul is saying here, count it up. Consider all that you have in Christ, remember your baptism. And when you count it all up, yes, indeed, we may still await the resurrection. 
But right now, this is where we stand. We have been united to the one for whom the resurrection has already passed. Do you see it? That's what you have. So in this sense, you're not in an intermediate state. You have been given weapons to fight sin that are stronger, infinitely stronger than sin. You have real hope because you are not just dead to sin's power, but in Christ you are alive to a new power, the power of God and the power of the eternal life of the resurrected Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us, O oh Lord, to account, to count, to measure, to calculate, to start to see with fresh eyes what it is Jesus came to say, to do, and to bring. Yes, of course, he died on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God, to take away any threat of condemnation of sin. This is gloriously good news. But it's so much more than this. As Paul seems at pains to show us in Romans chapter 6, he has brought us good news now. The power and grip of sin and death has already been overcome. We don't live in this world. We don't have to fight every single day with the carnal weapons of the flesh. We don't have to try to to get rid of the problem of sin with the weapons of sin itself. We've been given a new power, the power of the cross, the power of death, the power of losing. This is what creates a gospel culture for a church. Would you do that for us, oh God, please? Instead of a group of people, a bunch of people trying to push for power, and privilege. We can lay everything down because in Christ we've died to sin. It has no dominion over us. We're free to walk in the newness of life that is ours in Christ who's already been raised. Glorious good news. When we see it, we'll not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes.